Thank you for being here with us this morning at Christ City Church. Uh, my name is Jamin Carter. I'm one of the elders here at Christ City. And before we get into our scriptures for the morning, uh, I want to share an announcement. Last week, we had uh, a presentation of our different story groups. One of the ways that we do community together is through something called story groups, where we have small groups of four to eight people who gather together on a regular basis to uh, share their stories with one another and to live those stories out. It's an essential piece to Christ City's community. And so last week after the service, we had some gourmet Papa John's pizza and um, different people got up and shared about their, their story groups and what they would be doing over the next semester or two. Well, if you were not there last week, I'm sorry. You can't join a story group. I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding, of course. After the service, there'll be a booth out there manned by Cherie and I believe Drew as well. Um, so even if you've already signed up for a story group, that's just a cool booth to go to because those are two really happy, fun people. So, But there'll be a booth back there where you can learn more about story groups. There's even a little packet back there uh, that they can show you and show you how you can get involved in community that way. So I really encourage you to do that. Um, it's an easy way to start getting connected and be known because Christ City is a place. We are becoming more and more a place where you can come to be known and to know God, to belong and to know God. So let's, uh, if you are able, stand for the reading of the word this morning. Our text is in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and we will read through verse 12. And uh, if you're new and visiting, you don't have to, there's no call and response to this part. We're just, we just stand for the reading of the word. I'll read it to us, and everybody follow along. Seeing the crowds, he went up. On the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to pray before we jump into this text. Lord, I pray that as I stand here today that uh, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable to you, that you would move in our hearts and our minds. I pray that all of us would have eyes to see and ears to hear what your word is showing us today, and that we would have the courage to carry it out in the world as we leave this place. Amen. So um, we are in a series right now as a church around the, the Beatitudes, this famous passage of scripture that you can find uh, in any collection of religious texts. It's been uh, a, a group of scriptures, a collection of scriptures that has been meditated on, that has been debated over, that has uh, influenced 2,000 years of Christian community as well as other religions. And where we are today in the Beatitudes is verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This uh, topic is not a, a fun holiday weekend topic, right? This is, this is not something that you're getting beach balls blown up to help 
get ready for a text like this. It's, uh, it's pretty heavy. And it's also very intentionally placed after what Drew preached on last week. Last week, Drew preached on verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And in the unpacking of that text, he showed us the difficulties and the challenges of being a true peacemaker, someone who doesn't just gloss over the challenges and the difficulties of life, the uh, abuse of power and oppression that happens all over the place in our world, but somebody who engages those topics and seeks to bring deep peace and healing in the world. So the natural result of that would be this, this next verse that we see. So if peacemakers are bridges that get stepped on, what kind of hope do we have moving forward into what will eventually take place for us if we become that bridge? That is, blessed are those who are persecuted. Persecuted for righteousness sake, in particular for righteousness sake. Next week, we will get to persecuted specifically because of Jesus. But this text is dealing with being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So as we deal with this text, we're going to be looking at three different questions together. And uh, we're going to put those questions on the screen for you right now. Those three questions or three things we're going to explore, I should say, is what persecution isn't, uh, a portrait of a persecuted person, for righteousness sake, and the last and least favorite, persecution and eventuality in a righteous life. Y'all ready for this? I hope I'm ready. So, I want to start here with what persecution isn't. Any of y'all know who this lady, she sings, you might have heard of her, her name is Beyonce. Anybody heard of Beyonce? Holler if you like Beyonce. Anybody like Beyonce? All right, I like Beyonce. Queen B. She is an international superstar. Let's get that nice portrait of her up. Oh, it's already up there, great. So Beyonce is an international pop superstar, loved throughout the world. And um, there were a group of people, there was this, there was a, a big conflict that came up. I don't know if you are aware of this. Um, I know there's been some other important things going on in the world, but uh, this is to do with the queen right here. So, but there were pro professional pro photographers coming into her concerts and taking really bad pictures of her. You know, like that worst moment picture that you have where somebody tags you in on Facebook and like one of your eyes is open, the other one's closed, and somehow, you know, your whole mouth is all contorted in different ways. So they found like a lot of pictures like that of Beyonce. Let's see those pictures for a second. All right. And, uh, I, all right, let's go back to the other one now. I don't want to put, I don't want to put Queen Bee on blast for too long, all right? So, this really upset her and offended her because then they were putting it all over social media. And so what she did is she banned those photographers and she made a list of only acceptable professional photographers that could come into her concert and take pictures of her so she wouldn't get those kind of pictures out there on the internet of her. Of course, most of those, you know, that I just showed you weren't from professional photographers. They were just from people with iPhones. You can't block that. So it didn't really work. But my point is to ask you a question. You think that's persecution? That persecution? Persecution for righteousness sake? Nah, probably not. Probably not persecution for righteousness. It, it's not cool, but it, I, I wouldn't categorize it as persecution for righteousness, righteousness sake. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because a lot of times uh, there are people in the church, in the evangelical church, that are calling calling persecution. They're saying, they're crying wolf. They're saying, I'm being persecuted. So it's important for us to answer this question before I get into the text and be like, oh yeah, Jesus is being persecuted and I'm identifying as being persecuted for things like 
not saying Merry Christmas on a Starbucks cup, right? That's not persecution, people. That's just, you're used to having things your way, and now it's not your way anymore. That ain't persecution. That's just a minor inconvenience, if even you could call it that. Um, if you were to rent a blimp, true story, rent a blimp and get a PA system and fly around your neighborhood preaching the gospel and dropping tracks into people's backyard, and then said blimp was mysteriously vandalized later, that's not persecution. You're just being a jerk. <laughs> You're up there screaming at people. Or if you were to be on Beale Street with signs and stickers and flags screaming at people, you're going to hell, turn or burn, put your margarita down, right? And somebody threw their margarita at you, that's not persecution. You're being a jerk. Couple more. <laughs> if you get on Facebook and you say, you know what? I posted this article. This is the truth. This is the end of the story on this. If you don't agree with this, you are the problem. And somebody says, I disagree with that, and I think you're being a jerk. It's not persecution. Although, being trolled on Facebook at some point could, could get into the persecution area at some point, but not that example. So, if we are expressing our faith, our, our beliefs, but we're being a jerk about it, or we, we are acting like we are on a moral high horse, or that we theologically know it all, and that's how we're coming to people. I had a, a, a guy who was, who was telling me that one time, and good guy, pure heart, right place, but man, when he talks about evangelism, I don't want to be around. I love Jesus so much. My whole life hinges on the grace that I've received from Jesus. But when this guy starts doing evangelism, I want to get away. And he told me, man, I was out trying to share with people and they just don't care about Christ. And I'm thinking, nah, dude, they don't, they don't want to hear what you have to say. They don't want to hear anything coming out of your mouth because of the way it's coming out of your mouth. They don't even know that what you're saying has any relationship to Jesus. And uh, so this can happen outwards and it can happen inwards as well, where we feel persecuted by the church, where we bring something to the church and, and they don't like it or, or they reject it, but we're not doing it in a respectful way. We're not doing it in a way that builds and engages conversation. I was listening to a podcast by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He's written uh, several books. He's a journalist as well, books like The Tipping Point and David and Goliath. He's a really weird, eccentric, cool dude. And, and he was interviewing uh, this pastor who made some very difficult decisions about being involved in the church. He'd been involved with the whole 96 years of his life and in a respectful way that he disagreed with the church. And as Malcolm was narrating and giving us snippets of the interview, he said something particularly poignant about this. He said, and there's a quote on the screen, it says, you must respect the body you are trying to heal. Another way of saying that is, if you care about the thing that you're speaking out against, that you want them to hear truth, it has to be done in a kind, respectful, and compassionate way. And uh, somebody who has not historically been good at that is me. You can ask my wife. She has said, yeah, but you're just being a jerk. Like what you said might be right, but you're just being a jerk. And I'm like, oh, well, what do I say to that? Yeah, so I'm actually, I, I apologize visitors who don't know me and you'll probably never see me again. Uh, I don't do this every time I preach. It's not cathartic for me. Um, but I felt like it was important in this conversation about persecution to do a little bit about this, say a little bit about this. So I have not always handled this well 
myself. I can come off as a know-it-all. My wife's called me that many times. I've been very forceful in arguments to the point where it doesn't give another person time to formulate their thoughts in response. I can become impatient with people who seem to be close-minded to me. Uh, I haven't always given space for conflicting ideas to have time to be argued about in a respectful way. These things were wrong, and I have shame about that, and I'm sad about that, and I hope not to do that in the future. Because if I'm going to be persecuted, which sounds weird to say, but I fully intend that that will happen to me, I don't want it to be because I'm a jerk or because I think I have the moral high ground or because I think I'm more theologically astute or because I have some type of voice amplification device. I want it to be because of my righteous life, because of the righteous life that I'm living. And again, some of you might say, no, you can't be righteous, only God is righteous. Well, that means you weren't here last time when we preached on righteousness and we explored the idea of righteousness. There's three aspects to righteousness in the scriptures. Two of them are the ones Jesus is talking about right now. That's our moral righteousness and our social righteousness, not our perfect in the eyes of Jesus because of his sacrifice righteousness. This is what Jesus is talking about. I know I kind of said a, a whole lot there. Let me summarize what I'm saying. Persecution is about how you deliver the message. It has everything to do with how the message is delivered. If you are not kind and compassionate and patient, then what you might be experiencing that you think is persecution is not. And I never really defined it either. Persecution is just some type of hostility. It could be verbal. It could be physical violence done to you over a period of time. That's what we would call persecution. So we've got a little bit to, to, to help us keep going here on this idea of what persecution isn't. It helps us often to look at what something isn't so we can better understand what it actually is. So we're ready now to look at our second point, a portrait of a persecuted person. Who do you think would be a good person for us to talk about as a portrait of a persecuted person? Th throw some ideas out there. Man, what else? Who else? Come on. <laughs> Paul, anybody else? What, what, what? MLK, anybody else? That's all y'all got? I think you'd think the list would be longer. Gandhi? Yeah, okay. All right, we're getting, I, I'm putting y'all on the spot, right? I've been thinking about this for three weeks, so. We're going to look at Jesus, because this, this, <laughs> this series is all about Jesus, all right? We could go John the Baptist, we could go a lot of other places, for right now, we're going to look at Jesus. He's the one who said it, so if he didn't get persecuted, then, you know, we need to rethink about this whole Bible thing, right? Uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. Jesus has been uh, going around, healing people, teaching, doing these kind of things. And it's these guys named the Pharisees are just like always popping up, being like, well, what about this Jesus? Or, oh, did you see what happened over there, Jesus? Did you see what your disciples did? And so they're, they're badgering him at this point. I wouldn't say they've quite moved over into the area of persecution, but they're trying to catch him. They're trying to figure out how to do away with this really troublesome character named Jesus. And so this is one of those scenarios in, math, in uh, Matthew chapter 12. And so the Pharisees are addressing Jesus. We're starting in verse 9. Everybody there? If you're there, say amen. amen. Oh, I got Christ city to all say amen. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. 
And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, they being the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, so let, let, let me paint the picture here, right? They're in the synagogue, somewhere over to the left or the right, I'm going to say to the right, is this man who has a withered hand. And so the synagogue is like their church, the Jewish church. And so Jesus rolls in there, he's got his disciples with him, and the Pharisees are like coming in, you know, on the side there, maybe they're already in there, clustered in a group talking, and they come in and they're like, oh, Jesus might try to heal that dude, this might be our chance. And so they ask him, you know, about this, and Jesus responds, he says, he, asks, he, he sort of is asking a question like, is this right to do? Would it be right for me to heal a man if it's right to pull your sheep out of a hole on the Sabbath? In, in another account, it says the Pharisees held their peace. They wouldn't respond. So in my imagination, Jesus is standing there. Here's the Pharisees. He's looking at him, and he's like, hey, man, stretch out your hand. And the dude stretch out his hand. He's like, there's your answer. Mic drop. That's, that's the way it appears in my mind, so I wanted to share that with y'all. So he, he heals, heals the man's hand, but what does it say? It says, the man stretched out his hand and it was restored healthy like the other, but in verse 14 it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Why would they do that? He just healed a man. The Pharisees loved God's word. They loved the scriptures. They wanted to know, how does Jesus interpret these laws about the Sabbath? What we find over and over in the scriptures is that Jesus is bringing a new interpretation than the current interpretations of the day. Not, he's not contradicting the scriptures, but the scriptures as to how they were interpreted by the people of the day. So right now, there are a series of interpretations about things that we ascribe to. Some of us, different camps, we ascribe more to some interpretations than others. But Jesus is coming in here, and he is saying over and over again that my interpretation is the absolute authority. And there are certain principles that his interpretations hinge on. And this is the reason why Jesus was persecuted and not the Pharisees. The, the things that his interpretation of the law hinge on are so different from what the Pharisees the lovers of God's word over anything else, they're so different from theirs that, that he would be killed, that he would be persecuted and badgered and hunted and lied about and whipped until he was murdered because of how he interpreted the scriptures. So what is it? What, what is it that's so different about how Jesus interprets the, scripture, the scriptures than the religious people of the day, than how sometimes we interpret the scriptures? I, different than how I sometimes want to interpret the scriptures. What's different here? Somebody, turn to your, turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus said it different. Look, at, look to your other neighbor because they weren't feeling you. And say on the other side, you know what? Jesus said it different. Oh, the first time was actually better than the second time. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting, too, getting too far with y'all on that stuff. Here we go. 
So what points does Jesus make? He says, I'm going to stick with, with one point. There's a whole lot going on here. We could, do, we could talk about the Sabbath for a sermon. We could talk about all kinds of different things. But I want to talk about this aspect of Jesus' interpretation here and why the Pharisees said, we're going to destroy this dude because of, of healing this man. They said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus brings up a situation. So the Pharisees had a series of rules. The rule was you couldn't what on the Sabbath? Work. That's, in, that's, the, that's, the work, that's the law in the Bible. The Sabbath is for rest. Keep it holy. But then you have to decide, well, what's rest and what's work? What counts as work? So if you talk to a modern Orthodox Jew today, they might say, on our Sabbath, on Saturday, you cannot walk more than a single mile over the course of the day, or else that will be work. You can't use your cars. Even here, if you go to East Memphis and you go to the Jewish community there, there will be observant views, Jews who do not drive their car on Saturday, and they make sure that they've actually arranged and bought homes in close proximity so that they can walk to each other's homes on Saturday because they do not want to violate the Sabbath. This is serious stuff. These people were trying to be very observant to the teachings of God so that their lives would be an example of righteousness in the world. But there were many other laws, like you can't need bread. You can't break up grain in order to cook with it. If you're going to have some bread, you need to take care of that the day before. There were many important rules that they developed as interpretation of the law about work on the Sabbath. But what happened? What happened as that continued? How did they go awry to where they would be in conflict with the author of that law, of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Isn't that scary? That they could be trying so hard to obey the law, but got so off track that when the law in flesh, incarnate, is in front of them, they are in opposition to Him. That should give us pause. So, He says, in your law, essentially, you say it's okay to go get your sheep out of a hole, which not everybody would have agreed on that interpretation, not all the rabbis who interpreted. He said, so isn't a man worth more than a sheep? But it's, he's not your man. He's not your kid. He's not your people. He's just a dusty old, crusty old man with a shriveled up hand. That sheep, I can get money for that sheep. I can make clothes out of that sheep. I could use it for my Passover supper. But I don't know this dude over here. Why can't you just wait until tomorrow to heal him? Why you got to do it right now, Jesus? Why can't you be a little more patient? You can heal him tomorrow and it'd be no problem. So what is it that Jesus is trying to tell us? Why is it this is such a difficult situation for the Pharisees? Well, I mean, I've been saying it, right? It's not coinciding with what they have been glorying in. They have been valuing their own rightness rather than righteousness. And Jesus, can I say that one more? I'm going to say that one more. I don't think y'all heard me. <laughs> they were valuing their rightness over righteousness. That's a good time to say amen. Somebody say hallelujah <laughs> or mercy. <laughs> because I think I've done that before. And some of you probably done that before too. Jesus says, around this same passage, he says uh, in, a, in a, uh, another gospel uh, recording the same event that Sabbath was made for the man, not man-made for the Sabbath. Glorify God, not rules. 
The rules are only as good as they allow us to live righteously. Jesus says, go and learn the meaning of this. This is what he says to the guys who had the entire Bible memorized. This is what he said to these Pharisees. He said, hey, y'all go, go on and learn the meaning of this. Come back to me when you got it. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. Glorify God with your life, not the rules. So the thing here, the underlying thing, the principle that Jesus interprets his law with that got him crucified is this. He always, always helped and sided with the people who were the least valuable in society. If there was a choice between the powerful and the powerless, you could find Jesus on the side of the powerless every time. And this is upsetting. This is not the way the world works. This is not the kingdom of men. And it would not stand. And so they had to kill him. Because he said, no. The one with the most power and authority, I will use it to care for the marginalized, for the sick, for the racial minority, for the ethnic minority, for the cultural minority, for the sexual minority, for the gender minority. I will serve on the side of compassion and kindness. I will interpret the law for that purpose and to that end, not to glorify the rules. So there's different kinds of persecution. Some kinds is like, we're going to kill you. And many, many Christians over the past couple thousand years have died for their faith. Many are dying now. Many will die People will probably die in America over their faith at some point in the future. I doubt it's just going to stay like it is. I'm not prophesying. I'm just saying, like, that's the trend of history. So, but there's also something now that we're getting more of a picture of what persecution really tends to look like in Scripture, of siding and being compassionate with the marginalized. There's also a more civilized type of persecution, That type of thing that says, well, Jesus, I'm not a Pharisee, and I'm not the man with the shriveled hand, but I'm standing here and I'm saying, well, I like that you healed the guy, but you 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 did it on the wrong day. So I can't I can't get down with that. Like I agree with your premise, but I, I I can't follow you to your conclusion. And so I'm going around now and I'm talking bad. I'm saying, man, that Jesus guy, why can't he just stay in his lane? Why has he got to be different? Why has he got to always be challenging things that we've already decided? The people with the power to make the rules, we've already made the rules. You just got to obey the rules. But Jesus comes and he says, you know what? Just because something is legal doesn't make it just. It doesn't make it righteousness. Just because something, I'm going to say that again, just because something is legally right by law does not make it righteous. Do y'all hear me? And thank God for that, because there have been, there are, and there will be unjust laws here and everywhere else in the world, or even just laws that are interpreted unjustly. And so Jesus says, where will you be? Will you be with me? Will you be the one who denies yourself, picks up your cross, not like the little gold one around our neck, like the one they used to kill common criminals? That's what, that the American equivalent of that would be the noose. He says, that, that's what you could pick up to follow me. So how is this good news? How is this a blessing? Think about that for a second. How is this a blessing? Do you have an answer? That's okay. The scriptures do if you're you're not there yet. I've been thinking about this for three weeks. 
Let me give you a summation of the thought here uh, in a quote. It's not a quote, it's just something I wrote, so I'm quoting myself, I guess. It starts with a good way to test. A good way to test. A good way to test the persecution of your righteous acts is to ask who or whom does my righteousness protect or defend or serve? If the answer isn't those who are marginalized or those without power, it might not be righteousness you are being persecuted for. If your righteousness is not in defense of the weak, you might want to question if it is righteousness at all. So, some of you may be convinced, some of you may be angry, some of you may be sad, I don't know. But I think from this scripture, we have enough to move into, so if this is a picture of persecution, a painting in the life of Jesus of what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake, then let's move now to persecution and eventuality in a righteous life. This idea, it it reminds me of the scripture in Luke that says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. You are the light of the world. This church, Christ City, you are the light of the world. Don't cover it. So I'm going to give you a couple of other examples of uh, people who are in the process of being persecuted for righteousness sake, or they did not have the faith to stand up enough to be persecuted for righteousness sake. And I want to start with this guy. He's a Baptist pastor, the only Baptist pastor in the whole country of Iceland. And uh, some of you, if you keep up with these type of things, abortion, pro-life, things like that, you might have heard of this story. It came out on August 30th. But this pastor, his name's Gunner. Uh, He's the only Baptist pastor in this country, and there was a headline that came out this week, and it said that uh, Iceland was close to being, to eliminating Down syndrome in their country. And people are like, oh, that's great. How do they do that? They figured out how to splice genes and stuff like that. No, it's not like that. Uh, Let's read a little bit about what he has to say about this, keeping in mind this idea of persecution. Uh, so starting with, this is, this is him speaking here. This is an article from Christianity Today. Every day, as I walked into the intensive care unit in a hospital, I looked over a wall of pictures of young children and teenagers holding up photos of themselves as premature babies. They had been born after as little as 21 or t- 22 weeks of pregnancy. It was a monument to the lives that were saved. He was there, by the way, because he had two children, one that had a genetic uh, mutation that only two other people in the world had ever been diagnosed with, and a little, little boy uh, who had developed leukemia when he was like three or four. So that's why he's in this intensive care unit seeing these pictures. <clears throat> so, let's see. Meanwhile... The cultural conversation in the rest of Iceland seemed so distant from what I saw in the hospital. There were talks of new legislation pushing to make abortion available as late as the 22nd week of pregnancy. So the same time that he was seeing these premature babies that were born and nursed to health is when they're extending, they're trying to extend abortion to. And this month, the issue... Abortion in Iceland took the internet by storm with a CBS News report on how the country, population 340,000, is on the verge of eliminating Down syndrome. What sounded like an impressive medical achievement was quickly revealed to be a a spin on our heartbreaking reality. Only two to three children a year are born with Down syndrome since nearly 100% of mothers whose tests show a a high likelihood of the condition end up choosing abortion. This is in Iceland. 
those stats. Iceland's National Lutheran Church regularly takes to big media platforms to condemn violence in sports, such as mixed martial arts. But in the wake of this news article concerning Down syndrome in Iceland, the silence was deafening. The few priests in the national church who want to stand for truth may take issue with its approach to abortion, but most likely experience pressure not to speak out. So this guy, he, um, he is, he's, he's making a stand for who? For somebody who is powerless, for somebody who is weak, the unborn child, the child that if it was taken out right now could easily be one of the pictures of those teenagers holding that card. This is new for him, but he's going to experience persecution. Hopefully, God willing, he will do it in a way that is honoring to God, that he won't be that jerk with the megaphone, but that he will find a way to lovingly and kindly approach these people, which Iceland was dubbed by the media the most godless country in Europe, um, and share God's love with them and kindness and compassion with them. And that his persecution will come out of that. That they will, he will be able to say, like Jesus, well, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. And we sang the dirge, but you didn't mourn. That's what Jesus was saying. He's like, it doesn't matter what I say or do, because y'all just don't like the heart of my message. Y'all don't like how I'm upsetting this balance of power. You want to keep your stuff where it is and keep the people without the stuff where they are. There's a very famous American theologian. He's been dubbed by many as, as the most famous theologian that has ever come out of America. His name is Reinhold Neuber. How'd I do on that, Drew? Me and Drew, he, he asked me last week, I'm going to put him on blast. He said, can I say Negro in that Martin Luther King quote? So I'm kind of nervous about that. And I've been asking him all week, like, did I say, did I say Newber's name right? <laughs> uh, so we're helping each other out in that way. <laughs> so Newber, he a uh, very famous theologian. And he had a lot of really strong words about power and the gospel and the upsetting of power, but there were some things lacking in the time that he served in how he, uh, how he spoke out against certain things. So he, he did a really good job speaking out against um, like unfair workers' rights for certain classes of people, certain races of people, things like that. He did a really great job writing about those things over a long period of time. He served at a church in uh, 1915 in Detroit, and all the way to 1928, so about 13 years. And he also, his, his, his uh, office as a theologian was in Harlem, during the time Malcolm X was uh, leading and teaching. But he says this about his time serving as a pastor. He says, here I have been preaching for 13 years and crying, woe unto you if all men speak well of you, and yet I leave without a serious controversy in the whole 13 years. This man is an incredible theologian. He said, in another quote from one of his writings, I don't have it on the screen, it says, courage is the primary test of prophecy. There is no national community today in which the genuine word of God does not place the prophet in peril. But he said, I'm a coward myself, and I find it tremendously difficult to run counter to general opinion. Men, women, and yes, children were being lynched, thousands of them. Black men, women, and children, Jewish men and women were being lynched 
all around the country, not all around the country, but you know, mostly in the South, but different places, during the time that Newber was preaching and teaching and writing about all of these social issues, and he never mentioned it. He was too afraid. He was afraid of upsetting the power balance. If anyone is not familiar with what lynching is, it's when you take someone, and it was only black or Jewish, who was accused of a crime, could just be like, that guy looked at me funny, or it could be, that guy assaulted my daughter, or that guy took my job. And then a mob of people come around, oftentimes with a minister present blessing what was going on, and they hang and burn and castrate and cut off limbs and all of these different things to a person without power, without political power, without any recourse available. Men, women, and children. And this man who had one of the most powerful voices in American theology, never once mentioned it. His office was two blocks away from Malcolm X, where he met with the other brothers to discuss how black people could defend themselves. This is sad. This is part of our history in America. He knew that if he was like some of these other guys, like the Episcopal priest Quincy Ewing, Andrew Sledge, professor of Latin at Emory College, he could have lost his job if he spoke up. Jesus says, come and die. Come and take your cross and follow me. I will protect you. He, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say will be. He says is. What does that mean in that passage? That, he, that theirs is the kingdom of God. There is there are two kingdoms crashing into each other in our human history right now. There is one kingdom that values power over all else, comfort at the expense of the uncomfortable of the masses. And there is the kingdom of heaven that the king of this kingdom says, at all costs, I will defend, I will care for, I will protect, I will love, at all costs, those who the world has thrown away to my death, I will wear a crown of thorns to get my crown of jewels and be the king of kings and the lord of lords doing the exact opposite of what your kingdom does. You will have to kill me. But hey, he didn't stay dead, did he? He did not stay dead. And where does our courage come from then? We are death-proof, just like our Savior. You're death-proof. If you believe in the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then your fear can subside knowing that you can follow your Savior. He went unto death for his kingdom. That's what his kingdom is. It's immortality. So this life right now, this is the beginning. This is your time to be a soldier in the kingdom of heaven with no swords, with no knives, with no guns, with no weapons to lay your life down. Will you do it, church? Will we do that? Will we be like Nuber? Great in our theology, but voiceless on the issues of the defenseless? Will we be like King who lived under death threats? Martin Luther King Jr. lived under death threats for 13 years of his adult life while his children were growing up. Bomb threats, attempted uh, stabbings, and actual bombings of his home until he was finally killed. 
So the, the eventuality of persecution. Persecution, you might say, well, that's over in the Middle East. I've heard plenty of sermons talking about the missionaries overseas and the courage that it takes, and it does, and it's scary, and I don't want to go over there. But right here in America, right here, if you were today decide to interpret this book the way Jesus interprets it and live out your life from now until then, you will face persecution. You may not die. You may not get whipped. You may not get punched in the face or slapped, but you will face some kind of persecution if you live the life that Jesus is calling all of his followers to live. And you will be in good company. First and foremost, the man who had all power and all authority and all of the millions of saints who said, I will continue down this path of righteousness no matter what it costs me. Going back and forth here between the story that I want to finish on. And I think it's this one from the church father, Tertullian, maybe? I don't have it written down. Is that right? Do you know? There was a guy who came to him. This was in the early days of Christianity, and, and he had a business problem. He said, my faith is in conflict with my business. What do I do? I have to live. And you know what Tertullian said? Do you? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for even the visitors here today that those of us who have embraced the cross of Christ, who have said, that is my only hope, my only means of salvation, that you would give us together, not, not alone, together, as the church, the courage to act in righteous ways on behalf of the powerless, on behalf of the marginalized, that we would see your law, your book, the Bible, the way that Jesus did, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How much more value is a man than your property, than your comfort, than your possessions? Give us the courage to let that be our banner as we cling to that cross, our only hope in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.